Today's passage is from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of, of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sohi. So we are in our second message in our Advent series, calling it Good News, Great Joy. And the title is taken from the words of the angels in Luke uh, chapter 2, their announcement to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. They said, do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And as I shared Last week, as I was thinking and praying through what, what direction we take for Advent, what would our sermon series be, this verse just, just leapt off the page to me when I read it, good news, great joy, because this, this season that we're in as a culture, this year, 2017, I think it's, it's been a heavy year. There's been a lot of bad news. We've been hit with bad news story after bad news story. And we can be disheartened by that. It can make us feel very heavy. And so I think 
as Christmas rolls around, we're, we're pretty desperate for good news. We, I want to be joyful. I want to hear good news. I'm tired of all this bad news. And the claim of Christianity is that the coming of Jesus, the birth of Christ, Christmas, is the kind of good news that can bring deep and robust joy, the kind of joy that can endure, that can even deepen in seasons of sorrow and suffering and hardship. So I wanted to ask the question, how is this possible? Can we have this joy? Can we experience this joy this year? This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage, as we just heard read, that is a precursor to the story of Jesus' birth. It's kind of a prequel to Christmas. All four of the Gospels tell us that Jesus had someone prepare the way for him, that someone came before, that there was preparatory work to be done before Jesus came on the scene. And this was mainly the work of John the Baptist, who was a forerunner to Jesus' ministry. But only Luke tells us the story of John the Baptist's parents and his birth. The story of John the Baptist's birth announcement, as we just read it, or we just heard it read, is not, it's not like the typical birth announcement today. Today, when parents are ready and they're excited and they're ready to tell the world, there's all kinds of sharing that goes on. There's all kinds of creative ways that the announcement is made. And a lot of it is posted on social media, Facebook, or whatever. And then that's not even it. After the birth announcement, now there's another step that parents have to take, which is the gender reveal, which was not a thing when we had kids. But now you have a gender reveal party, and there's a cake, and you open it up, and it's blue, it's pink, or whatever. And there's all kinds of ways that the gender reveal happens. And that's understandable. Parents want to share their excitement. They want to know we're having a baby. They want everybody to know we're having a baby. And it's a boy or it's a girl, and they want to have other people share in their joy. But this is a very different kind of birth announcement. It's a story that ends in silence. And at the end of the story, both of the main characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're both silent. Zechariah, because of what the angel said to him, and Elizabeth, because she was taking time to hide herself entirely, it says, for five months. So it was supposed to be this joyful, celebratory announcement. You're going to have a baby. We're going to have a baby. It ended up being silent and quiet and hidden. Why? Why do we have this story? Well, I'll share uh, in one sentence why I think we have this story, and then we'll look at it as we go through the passage. Why do we have this? I think it's because one of the most important ways that, God's, that God leads us through joy is through silence. One of the most important ways that God leads us to joy is through silence. So we'll look at three points this morning. The silence of God, our difficulty with silence, and finding joy in silence. First, the silence of God. There are times in our lives, sometimes there are long periods in our lives when God seems silent to us. This is where the story of the Gospel of Luke begins. It's where the story of Christmas begins, and it's exactly how Elizabeth and Zechariah felt when we meet them in this story. They were struggling with the silence of God. Now, chronologically, if you take all the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you chart out all the events on a timeline, this passage, this story, Luke chapter 1, 
5 through 25, if you can imagine it as a movie, would be the opening scene. This is the opening scene in the Gospels. And there's something we might miss if we're unfamiliar with the historical context, because with the words there in verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, dot, 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 a long period of silence had just been broken. It had been over 400 years since the people of Israel had any prophetic presence, any message from God. And they were under the rule of the Romans. This, this king, Herod, was essentially a, a puppet king. He was ruling uh, in the interests of the Romans. They were under oppression. And they were struggling with injustice. And they were subjugated. And the last thing God had said back in the Old Testament was through the prophet Malachi over 400 years prior to this opening scene. Silence. There are different kinds of silent moments. There's awkward silence that we all experience from time to time. If you're in a conversation with somebody and things just kind of stop and you just go, so, mm-hmm. You know, and then somebody figures out some way to keep the conversation going. That's just awkward silence. Then there's uncomfortable silence. Sometimes when I'm leading a group or a class or teaching and I ask a question, and then there's just silence, and you let it linger. Once you get to about 15 seconds or 20 seconds, it gets a little uncomfortable. And like everyone's like, who's going to talk? I'm not going to talk. Who's going to talk? Usually I'll step in and say, okay, it's all right that we have some silence. Or I'll rephrase the question when it's uncomfortable silence. But then there's unbearable silence. I was listening to a pastor share a story of how he and his wife, they got in this big argument right before they had to take a long trip in the car. And so it just all blew up, and then it's like, okay, let's go. And it was two hours of utter and complete silence. That's never happened in my marriage, by the way. Some other pastor had that happen. But that's unbearable silence because you just feel the weight of it. It's like, when is this going to end and who is going to take the first step? In this passage, 400 years of silence. That's unbearable silence. How does this text help us in moments when it feels like the silence of God is unbearable? Well, three things to remember, I think it shows us, when it seems that God is silent. First, when, when God seems silent, it's really hard. In no way does the story imply or teach that during times when it appears that God is silent or absent or unresponsive, is it ever easy? Is it ever fixed by a simple answer or having the right theological answer and the right theological construct. It's really hard. We're invited into this older couple's story, into their lives, into their pain. And through this one couple's story, we're also meant to feel the weight of silence that was felt by the entire nation of Israel for so many years. It was so unbearable. It was so deep. Zechariah, he didn't even believe an angel who appeared to him right to his face and spoke to him. Elizabeth had to take five months to even begin to believe that it was really happening, that it was really true. I think by, by God breaking his silence here in this opening scene in the Gospels, in such a personal way, we know their names, we know a little bit of their story, God is saying through this very personal story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, I think he's saying to us, whenever it seems as if I'm silent, that I know it's really hard. 
It's really hard. But secondly, I think this text um, shows us that when God seems silent, that he's often setting the stage for an astonishing answer, for an astonishing end to that silence. What we see as silence is very often God setting the stage or preparing us for something astonishing, something completely unexpected. In verse 8, we're told that Zechariah ended up in the holy place of the temple. And if we're reading this and he's like, okay, he's a priest, he's in the temple, we're like, okay, that makes sense. But this is a big deal. This is a huge deal. Zechariah was on duty as a priest. And at this time in Israel, there were 18,000 priests. And the way that they worked in the temple is they worked on a rotation basis. So the different divisions would have their rotation and they would be on. And in those divisions, there were hundreds of priests and dozens of priests assigned to different duties. And here it says they drew lots to see who would go in to burn incense. And the background here is this is who would go in into the holy place. This is as far as you could get into the temple without going into the most holy place, which was only entered into once a year by one priest. So burning this incense for Zechariah as a priest was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And to some, they never even had that opportunity. I think the point that's being made here is that when God seems silent, when God appears silent, that he is often working behind the scenes. He's working in ways that are indiscernible to us, in the personal details of our lives, down to the moment when Zechariah would be on rotation. And his division is up to burn incense, and the lot, by chance, falls to Zechariah. God is at work in the personal details of our lives. He's been preparing Zechariah for this. He's been setting the stage. And in verse 7, as we mentioned, we're told the details about Elizabeth and about Zechariah. It says Elizabeth was barren, and they were both very old. For those who are familiar with the Old Testament story, this is like an alarm bell. When it says Elizabeth was barren and they were very old, the bells are supposed to go off. It calls to mind other times in Scripture when this same description was used. Abraham and Sarah, Samson's parents, Hannah, the mother of Samuel. In the Bible, whenever we're told a couple is barren, an army is small, a situation looks hopeless, things are impossible, it's a signal that God is setting the stage to reveal himself in an astonishing and unexpected way. Where we see impossibility where we see that opportunity is past, that it's too late, God sees a perfect opportunity to reveal who he is. When we think God is silent in those times in our life, often it's times like those when God is setting the stage for a dramatic act of deliverance for us. And we might ask, why? Why does God have to put us through silence, sometimes an unbearable silence, to work in this way? I think there's many answers we could give to that question, but one I'd like for you to consider is that God works in this way because he wants to remove all doubt as to the answer to the question, was that God or was that me? This thing that happened in my life, this fortunate circumstance, was that God at work? Or was that just me or chance? 
God is often working in silence to remove all doubt as to the answer to that question. When God is silent, it's, it's really hard. When God seems silent, he's setting the stage for an astonishing answer. And thirdly, when God seems silent, we can always trust in his timing. In verse 20, the, the angel says to Zechariah, you will be silent after he doesn't believe him and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And those are significant words. These words of God, this promise of God, will be fulfilled in their time, in His time, not in our time. There's some, some irony here because the name Zechariah, the name Zechariah means God remembers or God remembered because Zechariah feels forgotten by God. And despite being impeccably religious, as we're told, faithful, blameless, despite his moral goodness, he had forgotten what was most important about God, that God is faithful to his promises. Even when we forget, he never forgets, he always remembers. In verses 16 and 17, what we see being quoted there, the promise being made about this baby who is to be born, that is a quote from the Old Testament. And it's not just any quote from any prophetic passage in the Old Testament. It's a quote from Malachi chapter 4, from the very last two verses in the Old Testament. The very last two things that God had to say. God has not forgotten what he said 400 years earlier. When God seems silent, we can trust in his timing. And Advent is a season for us to enter into this, to trust that God will fulfill all his promises. As we live in between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, we see that God, in his timing, is beginning to fulfill his promises in this life, in the now, and fully and completely in the life to come when Jesus returns. The silence of God. Though it is hard and God knows it, it's how he prepares us to be astonished and teaches us to trust in his timing. But secondly, in order for us to respond to times when God seems silent and to see how he's setting the stage, to be able to trust in his timing, it means that we actually have to take time to be silent ourselves. And that is so difficult for us. In order for Zechariah and Elizabeth to process this, this joyful news, this good news, the gospel that was brought to them by God, they both needed the same thing. They both needed an extended time of silence. And I'm not just talking about total silence in a room, maybe, but I'm talking about slowing down, giving time for the quietness of soul, for processing, for reflection. Those of you who are parents... Those of you who have spent time with children maybe have asked this question, how hard is it for a child to be silent for about five minutes? You may have wondered that. And if you've ever thought to yourself, when you're completely out of ideas and you're in the car and maybe your kids are going crazy or maybe you're in a room full of kids and you're a teacher and when you're completely out of ideas and you have no idea what to do and things are chaotic, then you turn to the quiet game. Now, let's play the quiet game. 
and see who can be the quietest for the longest. And whoever invented the quiet game was very cruel because the game never works. It's just an invitation for more noise to come out. I think the Guinness Book World Record for quiet game, the length of quiet is probably like 60 seconds or something like that. It never works. But it's not just for kids that they have a hard time being silent. It's for adults too. In the, the prayer liturgy that I use normally each day, there's a section in between two of the prayers, and it's very simple. There's a prayer to pray, and then there's three words, and it says, silence is kept. Silence is kept. And out of everything that I do in my normal prayer liturgy and rhythm, that's probably the hardest of all. When I get to that, say, okay, time to be silent. But then my mind is firing off. Oh, we can't take too long. We got all these things to do. What about this? Oh, we're going to read this. What's going to happen? I, how, what, what was going on in that passage? I just read all these thoughts come to mind, and my mind is full of noise. Silence is difficult for us. I want to touch on two types of difficulties that we have with silence. First is the difficulty of slowing down. Socrates said, beware the barrenness of a busy life. There's a kind of barrenness that comes from being too busy, overcommitted, and always in a hurry, living a noisy life. The more busy we are, the more barren our lives can become. And when that, that happens, the less joy we experience and feel in our lives. But the more busy, the more crazy, the more hurried we are in life, the harder it is for us to stop. For many of us, during this time of year, during Christmas, we have no choice. It gets busy. Work is busy. Life is busy. But for a lot of us, we talk about busyness as if it were something that were happening to us and we have no control over it, like a tide, like a current that's just sweeping us away. It feels like that. The last time I was in New York City, it was my second visit to New York City, so I was such a newbie and I was still so in awe and impressed by the reality that, yes, this city never sleeps. It's true. Like, people are always going. There's always things happening. And I remember walking off of the street into my hotel through the, the rotating doors, and I just stopped when I got in the hotel. I'm like, wow, that's quiet. And what, what hit me was not necessarily of how quiet it was in the hotel, but I didn't even realize how busy, what kind of commotion and noise was on the street until I walked into the hotel and realized, wow, that was very noisy out there. There's a danger of not slowing down. And the danger is we never even know how busy, how barren, how noisy our lives are if we just keep going. We never know what's going on within ourselves until we slow down. Blaise Pascal said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. When God wants to get a message through to us in all of our busyness, He offers us the opportunity. He invites us to process in silence and slowing down. There are two types of silence here in this passage. There's Zechariah's and Elizabeth's. Zechariah's was a forced silence. God had to force him to slow down. Elizabeth's was a chosen silence. 
this season of Advent, just a thought of application. Don't wait for God to have to force you to slow down, to get through to you. Take some time, even a short time, to choose stillness, reflection, and quiet. It's very difficult. It's the difficulty of slowing down. There's another difficulty when it comes to silence, and that's the difficulty of skepticism. I haven't touched on this yet, but you may have all kinds of questions as we're reading this story. This story and the rest of the Christmas story is full of angels. We have the angel Gabriel. It's full of miraculous births, a virgin birth. All kinds of supernatural phenomena are happening, and when we're reading that, a lot of us have a difficult time accepting it. Our skepticism about it all just, just won't quiet down. So when we hear this story, we have all kinds of questions that are firing off. How do we address the difficulty of our skepticism? A few thoughts on this. First, if we look at Zechariah and how he's described, he is one of the most pious, one of the most faithful and moral people, and even he had skepticism. supposed to see from this, I think, that doubt and skepticism are not just experienced by those who don't believe, by those who may be in a place where they would describe themselves as agnostic or atheist, but even by the most faithful and sincere people. We experience skepticism and doubt. Also, if we look at the very beginning of, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that we didn't read, Luke sets the stage for everything he's, he's writing in his Gospel, and he says, that inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, and he goes on to say, what I'm, what I'm telling you, what I'm writing is a result of what's happened in real history. There's a real historical setting here. I've interviewed eyewitnesses, and I've written a carefully ordered account of things that have really happened. In verse 4, the verse right before this, he says, the reason I'm doing this is so you'd have an orderly carefully researched, historically accurate account of the things that you have believed so that you might have certainty, so that you might understand the reliability and the reasonableness of everything that I'm sharing about the story of Jesus. So Christianity tells us that all these things, these miraculous things, these are things that happened in time and space. But that's really hard often for us to ex- accept. When skepticism and doubt come, Christianity encourages us, as Luke is encouraging us here, to ask questions, to investigate, to explore those doubts. But in order for us to find joy, we have to learn how to deal with our skepticism in a way that brings some silence. Or in other words, we need to learn to doubt our doubts. Leslie Newbegin was a missionary to India. He wrote a book called The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. When he had returned from uh, his ministry in India and come back into the Western world, he had talked about what he noticed would have become the the more widely held and fashionable idea that it is more honest for us to have doubt and skepticism than to have faith. Faith is naive, faith is simplistic, but doubt is sophisticated, it's more honest. And he talks about 
how we need to take that and examine that and learn how to critique our doubt, a phrase he borrows from a philosopher, Michael Polanyi. And here's what Newbegin wrote. He said, when we undertake to doubt any statement, we do so on the basis of beliefs in which, in the act of doubting, we do not doubt. I can only doubt the truth of a statement on the ground of other things which I believe to be true. The reason I underline those two words, belief and believe, is to highlight the point Newbegin is making. He's saying to address the difficulty of our skepticism, we need to get to the beliefs underneath our doubts. That there is no belief-neutral stance. In order for us to even doubt somebody else's belief, we have to have faith in a certain set of beliefs ourselves, on which we are using to doubt the beliefs or the position or the claims of other people. An example. We might say, well, angels don't exist. That's really hard for me to accept. That's really hard for me to believe. So to critique our doubt, to doubt our doubt, we would say, why not? What's the belief that's underlying that? And when we get into it, it's, well, I've never seen an angel. Well, you're the only person living on earth. Maybe somebody else has seen an angel. Well, nobody that I trust has ever told me that they've seen an angel. Well, could it be possible that somebody that you might trust could have seen an angel and told you that? And as we dig in deeper, we say, well... Really, the reason I don't believe that angels exist is because no respectable person in our modern world believes in this stuff anymore. And so what we find is we begin to doubt our doubt or critique our doubt that our doubt is based in a belief in the consensus of a modern Western worldview. But there are other cultures, there are other worldviews that have no problem in believing in the supernatural or angels. And so the point... And what Luke is encouraging us to do here, what the gospel is encouraging us to do, what Christianity encourages us to do, is to have an honest approach to our doubts. And that means that we apply the same level of scrutiny and skepticism to the beliefs that are underneath our doubts as we do to the difficult parts of the Christian faith. If you look at verse 18 in Gabriel, what he says to the angel, the angel says, this is going to happen, and he says, how will I know? It sounds like an innocent question, but the better translation would be, on what account should I believe this? Prove that to me. And what if Gabriel responded to Zechariah and said, okay, I'll prove it to you. What if God sends you an angel to meet you in the holy place of the temple and deliver you a personal message? And Zechariah would say, yes, then I would believe. And then he's like, oh, wait, <laughs> that's what's happening right in front of my eyes. I think the point is that even in the face of evidence and clues and persuasive reasons for us to believe, we can still find reasons to explain it away. For Zechariah, what was underneath his skepticism was actually a hurt and a pain and a disappointment with God. It wasn't the evidence that caused him to doubt, and he needed space, he needed time to doubt his doubts, to silence his skepticism to get to the belief underneath his doubt. The message of Christianity and of Christmas, it can't just be accepted quickly and lightly without careful and quiet thought and time. And to do that, we do need some measure of silence. 
the silence of God, our difficulty with silence, and lastly, finding joy in silence. How did the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth end? The short answer is it ended in joy. Later on in chapter 2, we see what the angel said in verse 14, where the angel said to Zechariah, you will have joy and gladness, and many people will rejoice at the birth of this baby. In verses 57 and 58 of chapter 1, we read, The time came for Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son, and her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And then Zechariah, when it came time to name the baby, he was still mute, he was still unable to speak, and they said, what is the baby's name? He wrote, his name is John, like the angel told him to do. And immediately he could speak again. And when he opened his mouth, he sang one of the most poetic and beautiful songs in all of Scripture. It's in Luke 1, 67 through 79. It's so rich, it's so sweeping, it's so beautiful that in many prayer traditions, it's prayed almost every day of the year. How did Zechariah's and Elizabeth's story end? It passed through silence and ended in joy. And it wasn't just silence. It was how the silence created space for something that is necessary and required for all true joy. And that is beholding. Beholding. In verse 20 of chapter 1, we read the word, the word behold. We often encounter this word in the Bible, and sometimes we just skip by it and say, okay, behold, that's just one of those biblical uh, types of words, behold. The angels use the word behold in chapter 2, verse 10. It's one of Luke's favorite words for storytelling. Eight times in the Christmas story, he says, behold. It means look. It means see. It's not just a throwaway word. In fact, the way that it's used here, it means, in order to get this, pay attention, slow down, or you'll miss it. Behold. The angel says, behold. You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things have taken place. Silence and quiet, it gives us space to behold, to really see. Albert Einstein, I think I have a quote, I love what he said about beholding. He said, the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and science. He to whom the emotion is a stranger, who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. He, can, he who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe. When was the last time that you paused to wonder and you were wrapped in awe? I've talked to some of you about what could be called the tunnel experience at Yosemite National Park. And if you drive through the main entrance into Yosemite, for those of you who have been there, you know, there's a long drive, and then you hit the tunnel, and on the other side of the tunnel, that's a picture of what you get to see. And there's a place for you to pull off right there as you're going through the tunnel, because you just have to stop. You've taken that long drive, and you stop, and you get out, and you behold. 
And what can you say? If you've been there, the, the picture doesn't even do it justice. What can you say? It's a moment of speechlessness. It's a moment of wonder. When it comes to joy, we cannot find joy and gladness in the gospel apart from the experience of being dumbfounded by grace, of being made speechless by the gospel. Richard Foster wrote, silence is one of the deepest disciplines of the spirit because it puts the stopper on all self-justification. Silence puts the stopper on all self-justification. When we're beholding something like this, something beautiful, something that leaves us speechless, the last thing we're thinking about is ourselves. The last thing we're thinking about is either how great we are or how not great we feel about ourselves. We're lost. We're speechless. We're dumbfounded. Beholding in silence is how we put the stopper on all self-justification. I don't know if you noticed the very different silences, the very different responses from Zechariah and Elizabeth. When the angel came with the message to Zechariah, what did he say? He said, I am an old man, and my wife is too. When he heard this incredible message, when he heard this good news, he responded first by looking to himself, by who he was and what he could do. All self-justification begins with the words, I am. I am good enough. I am not good enough. I am a success. I am a failure. I am a good person. I'm not a good enough person. And we vacillate in between short-lived pride when we feel good about ourselves and deep despair when we don't feel very good about ourselves. And in that place, there is no joy. But Elizabeth said something very different. In verse 25, she said, Thus the Lord has done for me. The Lord has done this. She didn't look to herself. She looked to God and what he said, who he was, and what he was doing. And all wonder, all joy is found in beholding, Thus the Lord has done for me. I was reminded this week of a quote from Robert Murray McChaney, an old Scottish pastor. He said this, and it stuck with me, and it's been one of those quotes that I fall back on many, many times in my life. He said, for every one look that you take to yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. For every one look to yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. And behold, behold him, behold him, and say, the Lord has done this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in all the, the noisiness of our lives, even now in the noisiness of our hearts, the busyness of our schedules, even in the ways that we are wrestling with parts of our lives where you feel silent, I pray that you would enable us to get to a place of beholding, that you would break through with the beauty of the gospel, that you would break through with the astonishing news of what you have done for us in your Son. 
put the stopper on our self-justification. Give us the gift of silence. So that grace would become amazing, so Jesus would become beautiful again to us. We ask it in his name. Amen.